There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You may be seated. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day that you have brought us to worship you. Father, we pray that as we look at your word today, that your spirit would be with us and that we would be taught and strengthened and edified and exhorted on what to do with the word that you have given us. Father, I pray that you would help us in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, looking at this passage, you might be thinking, haven't we covered exactly this before? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, looking at that first paragraph especially, um, a few weeks ago we looked at this exact same paradox about how to the righteous it seems that what happens to the wicked happens to them. And that to the wicked what happens to the righteous also happens to them. And it seems confusing to us sometimes. Solomon is repeating questions and he's returning to questions. And he does this a lot in Ecclesiastes. He's always circling around and going back to things and repeating in order to really hammer in his message. He's really trying to teach us something. And we saw this a few weeks ago, this paradox. We saw what Solomon suggests here. The Bible says that he, can, or that he commends joy and to eat and to drink. He tells us to be content with what God has given us. There in verse 17, though, he says something very interesting that I want us to look at today. He says, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now, we saw a little bit of this last week. There are things that we know. There are things that we don't know. There are things that we can't know. And so what we are to do is fear God and trust in his wisdom that he knows even when we do not know. But today I want to do something a little bit different. Rather than approach this sermon in a more uh, expositional way, I would like to do so in a more topical way. Uh, usually here we like to preach expository or sermons. Um, expositional preaching meaning you go to a certain text and you try to bring out what that text is saying. And you try to stay in that text and say, what does this text mean? And how can I apply this to my life? Now that is the most fundamental sort of preaching. You can't do any other kind of preaching without expositing, taking out the meaning that scripture is teaching us. But today I want to approach this in a more topical way. Topical preaching is when you look at a certain topic and you go from many different places in scripture and go to that one topic. You could think of this being almost like 
uh, biblical commentaries being compared to systematic theologies. Both are coming from scripture, but taking a different approach. And today I want to be exegetical, still bringing things from scripture, but I want us to approach a certain topic. And that topic is what we find in that second paragraph you can see there in the text on page four of the bulletin. Verses 16 and 17. There is a certain idea that Solomon is bringing out while he is discussing um, all of this. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day, then he says, how neither day nor night does one eye see sleep. He's searching for this endlessly. You can't even sleep when you're trying to figure these things out. But then he said, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now Solomon is a very wise man. But what we see here is that even his wisdom, even his supernaturally gifted wisdom to him by God, has its limits. There are things that Solomon doesn't know. And even further than that, he says there are some things that cannot be known. So much so that even if you found the wisest man in all the world who claims to know these things, it would be impossible. It would be unattainable to him. And so what if someone were to come and ask you certain difficult questions? What does God say about this? What is God doing in this? Why did God do it this way rather than that way? How would you answer them? How would you answer someone if they ask, what are God's plans for humanity? Maybe they ask an even more fundamental question. How do you even know that there is a God? How do you even know that your religion is true? How do you know these things? Perhaps they say these things are unknowable. No one can find them out, even if a wise man claims to know. How would we answer to them? Or how would we answer them to this question? And today, looking at this passage, I want to talk about the topic of revelation. Not the book at the end of the Bible, Revelation, but God revealing himself to us. How God speaks to us and tells us about himself, tells us about his plans. And I want to talk about the topic of revelation under three headings. First, the necessity of revelation. Second, the purpose of revelation. And third, the treasure of revelation. The necessity, the purpose, and the treasure of revelation. So first, what do I mean by the necessity of revelation? There's a very famous uh, mathematician, logician, philosopher um, from a while back, not too long ago, but his name was Bertrand Russell, and maybe you've heard his name before. He was a very famous agnostic who wrote the book, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, he writes, an agnostic thinks it impossible to know the truth in matters such as God and the future life in which Christianity and other religions are concerned, or if not impossible, at least improbable at the present time. And he goes on to say, I think that if I heard a voice from the sky predicting all that was going to happen to me during the next 24 hours, including events that would have seemed highly improbable, and if all these events then produced to happen, I might perhaps be convinced at least 
of the existence of some superhuman intelligence. Now, there's something interesting about that statement there and about statements made by other agnostics. Agnosticism being the idea that knowledge of God is unattainable or knowledge of the supernatural is unattainable. Maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. Really, we have no way of knowing. There's something interesting about this section. And what's interesting is that they are somewhat right, but also very wrong. In those two quotes, Russell hits on something. He essentially says, God and supernatural things are impossible to know. And those who claim to know them cannot truly know them. However, I might possibly believe if I heard a voice from sky or if I heard a voice from the sky giving proof of divinity. Very shortly said, he is saying, God is impossible to know unless maybe he were to speak to me. Now there, there is truth. There is some truth to that statement. Without revelation, with God revealing himself to us, without God speaking to us about himself, we could not know anything about God. That would be knowledge beyond our capacity. That would be knowledge beyond scientific inquiry. We could do all of the searching, all of the philosophizing, all of the searching things out, but we could never find God or understand God unless he were to first reveal himself to us. If I were to write a fictional story about a man named Bob who lived in a fictional world, in a fictional country, Bob would know nothing about Don Baker. He wouldn't be able to tell you anything about the United States of America. He wouldn't be able to tell you anything about teaching English or working in Korea. And Bob would have no way of understanding that in his fictional world on his fictional planet. That would be knowledge completely unattainable to him. And that is because the creation has no ability to move from the realm of the creature to the realm of the creator. It is impossible. Speaking of God's thoughts and his works, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Now it's not that God thinks smarter than us. It's not that God's ways are better than our ways. Rather, God thinks and he works in ways categorically different from us. God's thoughts are not higher thoughts. They are creator thoughts compared to our creaturely thoughts. God's ways are not higher ways than our ways. Rather, his ways and his works and his deeds, his being is that of the creature. Whereas what we have, our ways and our doings are creaturely I'm sorry, God is the creator. I think I said creature. God is the creator, but we are the creature. Therefore, our ways of thinking, our ways of doing things are not only lower, but they're in a different com a category altogether. They are creaturely. They are limited. God's ways cannot be understood by us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul describes God as dwelling in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. That is where God is. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him. 
and no one can see him. Maybe you've seen the image going around the internet. It started a long time ago of an astronaut up in space and he has this little piece of paper that says, I see no God here. It's a very blasphemous statement. It's a very evil meme to be made. But it's also silly. It doesn't make sense. It misrepresents our teaching. Even if my fictional character Bob were to climb the highest mountain in that world that I wrote, even if I were to write that Bob could create uh, spaceships and fly to different planets, Bob could search all of the reaches of that created world, but he would never find me in mega coffee writing on my iPad about his world. It would be impossible. And so we could fly up to the faraway planets. We could search out the universe. We could do all of these things, but we are not going to find God in his unapproachable light where we cannot see and where no one has ever seen. Bertrand Russell was right when he said that God is unknowable unless he were to speak. But this reminds us that he is very wrong in claiming that God has not spoken. You see, he is right in saying we could not possibly know God unless he were to speak to us. But he is wrong in saying that God has not spoken to us. Because the reality is that while revelation is absolutely necessary, it has also been done. God has revealed himself and he has made himself known to us. And so even when we talk about God's transcendence, when we talk about God being above all things and separate from his creation, we must never talk that way in a way that implies as it is, he cannot be known. It is true that apart from revelation, he cannot be known, but God has revealed himself. And so he can be known. And so I want us to look at that revelation. We have seen that revelation is necessary, but what is the purpose of this revelation? Why has God made himself known so that we can talk about him today? So that we can talk about him intelligently today and what he has done in the world. When speaking of revelation, we can often talk about it in two different categories. There is what is called general revelation and what is called special revelation. General revelation refers to knowledge about God and how he has revealed himself through natural means, especially nature. This is generally to all creation. All people have seen his creation. All people have within him his law written on their hearts. They have this sense of the divine. They have this knowledge of a creator and this idea that they have purpose in this world. That there are right things to do. There are wrong things to do. They aren't there randomly by accident. But it has been revealed to us through nature that we have been created for a purpose. And so civilizations all around the world have desired to know this purpose. Obviously, they have been given some revelation to know even this. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Notice, day to day pours out speech. God's revelation in his creation is speaking. And night to night reveals knowledge. Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
the Gentile, heathen nations who were never given the law of Moses. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Has God spoken? Has God revealed himself to us? The answer to that is yes. Yes, he has. The heavens declare his glory. Nature speaks to us that there is a God. It has revealed us or has revealed himself to us. So much so that Paul says that even the, nath- that even the nations are without excuse for their idolatry. They should know God from what they have seen. And yet in their hearts they have twisted it because of their sin. But given, the re- but given the revelation that they have been given, they should be able to know who God is and acknowledge him rightly as their creator. But we know also that mankind has fallen so much that even our reason, even the eyes that look at creation have been so affected by sin, so totally depraved is our being that something must happen beyond this general revelation if we are ever to be anything but condemned. And this is where special revelation comes into play. Special revelation is where God has especially revealed himself for the purpose of saving us. We see this especially in his word. We see this in the prophets. We see this ultimately in Christ. This is God's special revelation. The Belgic Confession says, God makes himself more clearly and even fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. Francis Turretin, the reformed uh, systematic theologian, he says concerning the necessity of this special revelation, revelation, he says, General revelation shows God's will with regard to the law, right? It shows what mankind must do, what is right, what is wrong. But imperfectly and obscurely. But the mystery of the gospel is entirely lacking in it. It proclaims the works of creation and providence, but it does not rise to the works of redemption and grace, which can be known to us only by his word. What he's saying here is that God has revealed himself to us in two ways. General revelation and special revelation. By general revelation, he has revealed to us his law. It has been written on our hearts. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. And so we could look out into the many different cultures. And we could even see that reflected in their different religions. We see that they have the law absolutely down. They have that covenant of works written on their hearts. They know they must do something in order to be approved by whatever divinity they worship. They know that there must be some law. God's law has been revealed to them. His righteousness and his holy standard has been revealed. But notice, only by special revelation, God's word, the prophets, his son, only by this special revelation do we see any hope of redemption and grace in the gospel? And we see even this reflected by surveying the many different religions. 
Only Christianity says you cannot work to justify yourself before God. Nothing you can do as a human being can justify God or justify you before God. And so there must be an incarnation. There must be a substitution. And you must have your righteousness from another. And this can only be received by faith and trust. That is the gospel. That is something uniquely declared to us through special revelation. And notice its purpose. Jesus tells us, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the purpose of revelation. We absolutely need this. But we must remember that this is not something we can demand. Special revelation is something that God did not owe to us. You know, sometimes we think in this way. We almost think that because God is love, we deserve his mercy. But that is not the way that we should think. Mercy is never owed to us. Otherwise, it can no longer be called mercy. Mercy can only be freely given even when it is not owed, even when it is not demanded. We cannot go to God and say, what about my mercy? What about my forgiveness? As if it were owed to us. Rather, we should never be surprised at God's justice. Instead, we should be surprised at his mercy. It is something that we did not deserve, but was something that he freely chose to give us. You know, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about how even the angels long to look into the drama of redemption. The angels are amazed at how God has set forth this plan to redeem mankind. And this is just my thoughts, my own speculation. Sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons why angels are so enthralled with the gospel is that they were never given one themselves. You know, the angels had a fall, but they never had a redemption. No demon could ever look to God and say, that's not fair. How come you became a man to save mankind, but you never became an angel to save the angels? How come you offer forgiveness to them, but never to the demons? No demon could ever say that. No demon could ever demand mercy, and neither can we. When we look at special revelation, we can never say to God, why some but not all? How is that loving? We can never say, what about those who have not heard? We can never say, what about those who you gave over to their sin before going to Abraham? What about those? Now, in some ways, there are things that we do not know, and perhaps God was working in ways that he has not revealed. But even if, by the information that we have, that those without hearing the gospel are lost, can we demand that God save them regardless? The answer to that is a very solemn no, because mercy cannot be demanded. Special revelation cannot be demanded. Otherwise, it is no longer mercy by definition. We must remember this. As much as we talk about the love of God and the mercy of God, it cannot be so commonplace that we think of it as a given, but rather it is a mercy, something that God has freely chosen to give us. And so we should be in awe, just like the angels, when we read passages like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He didn't have to. 
but he chose to. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Again, he didn't have to, but he chose to. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God as he has revealed to us in Jesus, the son of God made flesh, that exact imprint of his nature. That is the purpose of revelation. Knowing God and being with God for all of eternity is the reason why God has spoken to us. But let us never imagine that this is something we deserved. Rather, this gospel was truly merciful. And its purpose was to unite us to our creator, to redeem us from our sins, rather than giving us justice, condemning us by that general revelation. Rather, God was merciful in speaking to us through special revelation, especially in sending his son to redeem us of our sins so that we could have eternal life knowing God. Something impossible unless God first speaks to us. And so we see here that revelation is necessary. We see that it has purpose, being reconciled to God. But now I want us to look at the treasure of revelation. How should we respond? You know, one of the things that we often talk about in Christian worship is that it begins with God speaking first to us and then us responding to him. So in light of God speaking to us, in light of God revealing these things to us, how should we respond to the fact that God has spoken? Solomon seemed to really desire more revelation, more answers from God. He wanted to know more. We have been given more than Solomon. More has been revealed to us. And so how can we treasure that? As we are looking forward to Christmas, we can think about the importance of God speaking. If we remember following the prophets, following that time of revelation, there was 400 years of silence until God spoke in the most amazing way possible by sending his son. But until that time, there was silence and there was expectation. You know, many Christians at this time are celebrating a season of Advent. And while here we don't want to mandate any sort of works of penitence, we don't want to force you to fast in some way, I think it's good for us to remember at least the meaning behind the season, um, especially if we are going to be celebrating Christmas in a few weeks. We want to remember that before Christmas, before all of that celebration, before the coming of Christ, there was a time of solemn silence and expectation. And perhaps in light of this silence in the past, we can think of the greatness of God speaking to us now and ask, how can we treasure the fact that God has spoken? Psalm 19 says that God's revelation, his word especially, is to be more desired than fine gold. You know, I wonder if you were to go to many people and offer them a choice. Either you could never read the Bible again, but have billions of dollars, or you can read the Bible forever, but 
maybe be in poverty, have nothing. How would many people answer to that? Oh, the Bible? Useless. I don't even read that now anyways. I would like the millions of dollars, please. I think many people would respond to that or respond to that question in that way. But what does the Bible teach us? The word of God, his revelation is more to be desired than fine gold. Any riches that we can imagine is worthless compared to God speaking to us. Now, do we think about the Bible in that way? John Frame says, the word of God is a great treasure. We should rejoice that our God is not dumb, meaning unable to speak like the gods of the nations, but has shared with us his laws, his wisdom and his love. And God is always with and in his word. When we read his word, we encounter him. And when we encounter him, we hear his word. How could we treasure the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, if we don't value the word inspired by his Holy Spirit? If you know that God has spoken, if you know that those words of scripture that you hold in your hand are God's word to you, love your Bible and its teaching. Do not be ashamed of it, no matter how much the world wants you to be. The teaching of Holy Scripture is far more sacred, far more treasurable and valuable than the opinions of wicked men that vary from time to time and culture to culture. God's word is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of that teaching, but love it and treasure it. Search it. Desire to know it. Pray over it. One of the most evil opinions one of the most wicked teachings that has ever arrived in the history of the church is the idea that the Bible is not inerrant and infallible. Now, debates over fallible interpretations, understandable. Maybe you disagree with me on some things. I disagree with you on some things. We can have that sort of debate. But once we start saying that Paul contradicts Matthew and that Matthew and Paul contradict James and that maybe this author was inspired by you know, these different ways of thinking, but these other authors were inspired by other ways of thinking. Once we start saying things like that, we are no longer following Christ. When we start saying that all religions are equal, or that all religions and philosophies are simply valid attempts at contemplating God. I mean, we're all in the dark here anyways. Everybody is just doing their best. Christianity is just another expression of that. Once you start doing that, you are denying that the word made flesh, Jesus, is the only way. You deny that knowing the Father in Jesus is eternal life when you say that it could be done another way. You are saying that general revelation is enough to attain the purpose in life. General revelation is enough to know God and maybe make it to whatever idealistic afterlife you might desire. But no, we know that that is not true. Because we need special revelation, and we especially need Jesus Christ, the only door to the Father, the only way for man can be reconciled, not to this idea of God, but the one true God who truly exists and objectively created us for a real purpose, glorifying Him and loving Him and enjoying Him forever. Believe that the Scriptures are God's word to us. I think it's providential that we see even today our new memory verse for this month it really hit me when i saw it 
Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. How can you trust God to be your shield if you do not believe that his words are true? How can you believe him to save you if you do not believe that his word is true, where you have heard the testimony of Christ and the apostles? We must believe scripture. We must obey scripture as well. So first, believe scripture. Secondly, obey God's word. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Not only true, but reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, 97 through 98. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. God's law and his teaching is not some sort of abusive slave master beating us over the head, making us do things that hurt us or cause us sadness in our life. Rather, we should look at the law as a light in darkness, as healing for our souls. Are you miserable? Are you going through a very difficult time? God's law brings healing. God's law can be medicine for your soul. If you can look at your life and you can say, how am I breaking God's law by harming myself? Or rather, how am I harming myself by breaking God's law? We can look to God's law and see, how can you revive yourself? How can you see your soul revived? God's law can be that lamp in darkness. So another way you can treasure it is not only affirming it to be true, believing it, not being ashamed of it, but also obeying it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Take that word, read it, pray over it, and submit to it. Not out of duty to a harsh teacher, but out of love to your heavenly Father who wants to see your soul revived. And so honor the word in this way. Next week, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is another word, another revelation to us from God. In fact, Augustine and even the reformers following him, they called the sacraments visible words. Something that we can see, something we can touch, a revelation from God. He is speaking to us in the sacrament. In that sacrament, he offers us the body and blood of Christ. Jesus says in John 6 verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is taken together with John 6, verse 40, that says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we cannot disconnect eating from believing. If you come to the Lord's Supper without faith in your heart, you are not eating the body and blood of Christ. But rather, if we come next week prepared to come to the Lord's Supper we, by tasting and seeing with faith in our hearts. Paul says that we have participation in the body and blood of Christ. Jesus says that if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will be one with me. We teach that by coming to that Lord's Supper in faith, we are sanctified. We are strengthened and nourished. Our union with Christ is strengthened. But of course, this is only attainable by faith. And so just as you go to God's word with faith and expectation from God to use his word, 
come to the visible word in the same way. Next week, when we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, come to that visible word expectant, trusting that by the Holy Spirit, God can work in your life. This is how we are to trust in the revelation that God has given to us. And we are constantly looking forward, rejoicing, knowing that one day, the invisible and the visible words will no longer be needed. Talking about the Bible and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and baptism. No longer be needed because we will be face to face with the word of God incarnate when faith gives way to sight. And so as we close, that last line of Ecclesiastes, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he cannot find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. If you hear someone come to you saying, you can't know in reality that there is a God. You can't know the purpose in life. These things cannot be, find, be found out. Remind them that it's not that these things cannot be found out, but it's that they are not listening. God has spoken. God has revealed Knowledge of God is possible. Knowledge of salvation is possible. It's not a question of whether or not God has spoken from the sky. It is a question of whether or not we believe. Christianity is not a cult with secret or hidden knowledge. Rather, our faith is the proper and faithful response of a creation listening to the words of its creator. And so while there are secret things that we do not know, there are things that God has given to us. This is something we have talked about much when looking at Ecclesiastes. It's that principle from Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us, or the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Don't busy yourself with the secret things, those things that haven't been revealed. Rather, listen to where God has spoken. Humble yourself before his revealed word. Listen attentively to it, doing all you can to understand it and obey it with love and faith in your hearts because that is really what is expected of you. In a few pages or in a few weeks, we will see Solomon's conclusion when he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. It is in light in this idea that there are things that we do not know. Rather, our duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. When we do not understand what is going on, when we do not know what has been kept in silence, we trust and we fear God knowing that he has spoken and he has revealed. And he has especially revealed himself to us in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ in the sending of his son to die for our sins, to be our substitute, to give us his righteousness. He has revealed not only who he is. You know, if you want to know who is God, if you want to know what God is like, Luther says, look at the baby in the manger. That is what God is like. God is so loving that he would become a man for you. He would go to that cross for you. Do you want to know what God is like, who God is like? Look at the cross. Because Christ is the exact imprint of the Father. When we look at Jesus, we have seen the Father. We know who God is and what he is like. We see a God who 
comes to us when we cannot come to Him. We see a God who dies for us when we cannot attain or atone for our own sins. And He does all of this so that we can know Him and have eternal life with Him forever. So let us praise Him that He has spoken to us and let us respond with heartfelt obedience, with gratitude in our hearts because of what He has spoken. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, that you have spoken. Father, we ask that you forgive us for the many times that we have stopped our ears when we have acted as if you have not spoken, that we are lost in this world, that we do not know what we are to do. God, you have spoken to us, and you have spoken to us in the most loving way possible by sending your Son to die for our sins and restore us to relationship with you. Father, I pray that throughout this week we would remember what we saw in the reading that in the morning your mercies are new. Lord, we pray that in this new week we would go to those new mercies, that we would trust you this week, that we would desire to honor you and to serve you, and that we would be expectant for you to change us and help us. Father, I pray for all of us in this congregation that throughout this week we would treasure your word more, that we would read it daily, expectantly, praying over your word, knowing that it is a great treasure that you have spoken to us. So, Father, we thank you for not leaving us in darkness, but for giving us the light of your revelation. And again, Lord, I pray that you would help us in this this week. 